Uh, slide two, I screwed up. Um, so the pages are like in Hebrew or Arabic. Um, slide two would be the side that doesn't have the title on it. Um, all right, this is what we were talking about yesterday, what we'll continue um, talking about today again as a way to think about what is um, amazing about Paradise Lost, at least insofar as we are amazed by the, the uh, satanic reading of Paradise Lost, um, is the um, sublimity of that reading. And uh, to summarize very, very quickly what we were talking about yesterday, um, the idea of the difference between the sublime and the beautiful is, you could say in Paradise Lost, marked as the idea of the difference between um, attitudes, the attitudes of those in hell from the attitudes of those in heaven. Um, heaven is a place of beauty. Hell is a place not of sublimity, but a place which um, elicits or evokes or provokes sublimity in people's responses to hell. Um, beauty is something that we tend to think of as a harmony or serenity outside ourselves, which can enter into our minds, into our souls, into our psyches, um, and can um, transmit or transfuse some of that um, harmoniousness outside of us into us. Sublimity is something different. It's something outside ourselves. Um, perhaps it is caused by something outside of ourselves. Um, but it's not so much that if you see um, the Grand Canyon, if you see a raging storm, if you see um, the sea in um, thunder and lightning and tumult, um, that you simply feel tumult within yourself. Um, it's not hard to feel tumult within yourself, but it's, that's not generally an aesthetic experience. That's an experience of being upset. Um, sublimity more takes the form of finding what is tumultuous outside of yourself, what is terrifying, what is um, overwhelming, of finding that something that can make you respond to it as sublime rather than simply as disturbing or awful or scary um, or um, something that you would want to avoid. So the reason that sublimity tends to often have the sense of being something greater than beauty, other than beauty and greater than beauty is that beauty seems to come from the outside as an aesthetic experience. You look at the beautiful and you take some of that um, into your own mind, but the sublime seems to be a response in the mind that comes from the inside to what appears outside. Um, the sublime feels as though it comes from the soul, whereas the beautiful feels as though it comes from the world. They're both aesthetic attitudes towards the world and also aesthetic attitudes towards works of art, um, including writing. They're both aesthetic attitudes towards those things, but one is a more passive attitude. That is, the experience of the beautiful is more passive 
and the experience of the sublime is more active. I'm giving this as definitional, not as proof. It's rather that if you're that in trying to define the distinction between those two experiences um, in order to try to get you to see what it is that people mean by those terms, um, what I'm asking you to do is to consider two different responses you have to um, either the um, fascinating in nature or the fascinating in art, Fa or fascinating because it's beautiful, fascinating because it's sublime. These are two different kinds of fascination. And the way to distinguish them is to consider those moments where what is happening is coming from inside you, and, oppose, and that would be the sublime, and oppose them to those moments where what is happening is what's coming from outside of you. Originally, the term sublime had to do not with landscape, but with writing, with poetry. Um, it was the, our word sublime is a translation of a Greek word meaning exaltation or elevation. The um, great treatise on the sublime is by Longinus, um, and um, the literal translation of his um, treatise from antiquity would be of elevation, of height, or of exaltation. So the sublime is exalting. And what Longinus says is that when you read, there are some works, some moments in Homer, in the Bible, in other writings where you feel exalted. And he gives a great definition of that exaltation. He says, in the experience of the sublime, which is not the experience of the beautiful. The beautiful is when you read a beautiful poem and all the words harmonize and the rhymes are perfect, although they didn't rhyme back then. Um, but just everything falls into place and falls into the perfect, into perfect place. And to quote Alexander Pope, um, the sound seems an echo of the sense and it's all just right. He says, in the sublime, we feel different. He says, in experiences of the sublime, the soul takes a proud flight as though she herself has written what she has only heard or read. So yeah, Hannah. No, it's joyous in the face of fear. It's absolutely tends to be joyous. That's the exaltation of it. So it's not that you feel, um, if I conveyed that, I conveyed exactly the wrong thing. It's something that could be frightening, that something that from a rational point of view, what you would say is, um, yeah, that's frightening. Why would anyone go out to have that kind of experience? People who do go out to have that kind of experience go out because what is frightening becomes exalting. Because what um, would be dangerous, this is Burke's analysis, that the sublime is danger at a slight difference, at, as a slight, excuse me, at a slight distance. Danger, which for a moment you experience as pure danger, and then you realize that you will overcome that danger. And you realize that with a sense of joy or exaltation. His word for it, again, is delight. That is, that here's this storm, and it's really, really storming. It's like the storm that Lear goes out in, except that we're watching it from a place where it's not going to 
um, its dangers are not going to fall upon us, although they'll come close. So the experience now is one of exaltation. That, for Longinus, in talking about poetry, is the proud flight that the soul takes. Um, so the sublime, again, is not to use Kant's terminology, um, Kant who wrote um, a critique of the sublime and the beautiful. It's the first part of his critique of judgment. Um, Kant's terminology is that the beautiful gives you a sense of finality, that everything is falling into perfection and into, um, into place. The beautiful is form, and it gives you what Kant calls the form of finality, that everything is just where it should be, and it's all integrated and perfect. And the sublime is formless. The sublime is something which overwhelms form, which undoes the very possibility of, of bringing things into some kind of form. Um, if you think of Turner versus Monet, you can be thinking of the sublime versus the beautiful. In the sublime, things are not symmetrical. Things don't fall into place. Everything doesn't become harmonious, quite the reverse. And it's somehow that reverse of harmony, that dissonance, that um, the German term is storm and stress, um, Sturm und Drang, um, that leads to the sense of exaltation. And Again, the exaltation is such, the reason it comes from inside rather than from outside, is that it's such that it's not necessarily something you would expect. A way of putting this would be to say that it is very easy on biological grounds to see why a dog or a cat or some other mammal would find anything with a mammalian brain would find something beautiful. That is... Um, you know, beauty is when things are the way they should be and you feel safe and secure in the world and everything's okay. It's like heaven or the Garden of Eden. But the sublime is when you don't feel safe and yet you feel exhausted by the, exalted, excuse me, by the danger itself, as though something in your mind is converting danger into exaltation, you would not expect a dog to have an experience of the sublime. Dogs, if you had my dog, if you've ever had a dog, you know that they hate thunderstorms. They really hate them. Um, they go hiding in closets if they can. Um, people don't, and that's interesting that people will go out, be interested in storms, want to look out the window, want to feel the power of the storm. So there's a power outside of you in the sublime. The beautiful is not powerful. It can be intense, but it's not powerful in the sense that the sublime is. The sublime is a power outside of us that we match with a matching power from within us. And that matching power within us, that's what the sublime makes us feel within ourselves, is that matching power. So yes, it's joy and exaltation. Um, that's absolutely right. Um, I wanted to quote one other romantic writer on Milton and the sublime. This is Lord Byron in his um, greatest work, um, his long, long and hilarious poem called Don Juan. Um, spelt Don Juan, but pronounced Don Juan because he rhymes it with um, incessantly with phrases like new one and true one. Um, so th those are all rhyming with Juan. Um, 
in that poem, he's talking about Milton, and he talks about how Milton fallen on evil days and evil times. That's actually a quotation from Milton, as you will see when we get to the second half of Paradise Lost. Milton fallen, he says, if Milton fallen on evil days and evil times calls upon the revenger time. If time the revenger execrate, I'm sorry, I misquoted that he, because he's misquoting Milton. It's um, if Milton fallen on evil days and evil tongues calls upon the revenger time. If time the revenger execrates his wrongs and makes the word Miltonic mean sublime. Milton, he then goes on, if all this is true, he says it is true, Milton wouldn't behave the way some of his, Byron's contemporaries, are behaving. But Byron's point is that the word Miltonic means sublime. And it means sublime because of the figure of Satan first and foremost. So if the word Miltonic has come to mean sublime, it's because of Satan that the word Miltonic means sublime. At any rate, what I distributed for you was the very last section of Edmund Burke's philosophical inquiry into the origin of our ideas of the sublime and beautiful. Um, a great 18th century um, analysis, which I've a little bit summarized for you here, um, Burke is mainly talking about nature. That is, he's talking about why a storm is sublime, but why a garden is beautiful. Um, why um, certain kinds of architecture are beautiful, where a certain kind of rocky mountain passes are sublime. The difference between um, a really, really well put together, elegant building, which is beautiful, and a completely asymmetrical, rocky, um, scary, um, mountain pass, which is sublime. Um, his whole book is giving an account of what the difference between those things are. To just tell you what he means by pleasure and delight, this is part of your inheritance as English majors, you need to know this. To tell you what he means about the difference between pleasure and delight is he says pleasure is a positive feeling that we're going along in the world, just going along, um, motoring along, or horseback riding along, because it's the 18th century. Um, and then a nice thing happens, and we feel a little bit of pleasure, and that's good. And there are really limits to how much pleasure we can feel. The most intense pleasure we can feel um, doesn't last very long. Um, and um, as Lord Chesterfield very famously said about that pleasure, um, the pleasure is momentary. Do people know about this? Uh, Chesterfield's letter to his son, where he's advising his son against premarital sex, um, and especially premarital sex um, if he has to pay for it. Um, and what he says is um, the pleasure, momentary, the position, ridiculous, and the cost, damnable. Um, so that's pleasure for you. Um, Burke agrees that, the, that we really, um, to quote, a good man is hard to find, it ain't no pleasure in life. There's not really much pleasure as pleasure in life. It's sad, but true. Um, and just think about you know, how nice a flower is. It's nice, okay? So that's pleasure. 
pleasure to get a flower, a pleasure to, to smell a flower. It's all nice. Um, then, however, there's this other idea. And that idea is one of Burke's has terror, which happens with the sublime. And there's no limit to how much negative feeling we can have. It feels like terror is a far greater, more intense affect than pleasure is. To use the language of absolute values, which you all remember from math, the absolute value of terror is always higher than the absolute value of pleasure. The absolute value of pain or unhappiness or disturbance, neg all the negative affects that we feel in life, their absolute values are always greater or potentially greater than the positive affects, the positive feelings that we have in life. Burke says what happens in the sublime is you go diving deep into the negative. It's like, although he didn't have the concept of it, he had the picture of it, it's like bungee jumping, he says, um, or more or less says. That is, you jump and you, are you fall really, really far, but then you're safe. You look at the Grand Canyon and you don't fall into it. You look at Mont Blanc and it looks like it could kill you, but it can't and it doesn't. And you realize after a moment, after an experience of terror, after a really intense negative experience, you realize that you're OK and you bounce back to where you were. So that bouncing back from a moment of extreme possible negation back to where you started, that's what the exaltation is. It's the bounce back. So that's what Burke calls delight, is you're in a normal place, and then there's a storm, or a mountain, or a canyon, or something sublime, and that fills you with possible negativity, and then you come back because you're able to respond to it. You are able to find within yourself the resources not to be overwhelmed, by something which is close to overwhelming and finding those resources within yourself not to be overwhelmed. This is Burke's analysis. It's not quite Kant's, I'm just, uh, but I'm again giving you a picture of Burke's. Burke's analysis is you find those resources within yourself and in finding them you feel exalted. This mountain, this canyon, this storm, all the Antarctica, all of this, I can find within myself something to match and to resist all of this. And that's exalting. So that the mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell. That would be the sublime. That you're in hell, you find yourself in loss itself, to quote Paradise Lost, and then you find that you are not lost within loss itself. That's what the rebel angels rejoice in, to find themselves not lost within loss itself. So Burke is using this to describe the natural world, um, to describe architecture, to describe um, 
um, landscapes, to describe flowers, to describe music, to describe um, smells, to describe um, sculpture, to describe painting. That is, things that we um, perceive through the senses. But the very end of the inquiry, he starts talking about, well, what about poetry? Um, which goes back to Longinus's idea that the sublime is something that we experience in literature. Um, we also experience it now in rock music. The um, equivalent of the sublime now is the air guitar. That is as though you yourself were playing the lick that you were only hearing, as though you are somehow making it your own and playing it back as you listen to it. So the air guitar is a genuine and authentic um, example of the experience of the sublime. It's not the most sublime experience usually, although it may be, but it's an example of the experience of the sublime. Um, so joy, yes. Exaltation, yes. So Burke um, says, well, what about poetry? What about words? And if you look at the um, bottom of the first page, that is the page with the title on it, um, go to um, the place right after the etc. That is the ampersand C, which is etc. Um, besides, he goes on, many ideas have never been at all presented to the senses of any man but by words. As, so here are things that you only know by words. Gods, as God, angels, devils, heaven, and hell, all of which, however, have a great influence over the passions. And then thirdly, by words, we have in our power to make such combinations as we cannot possibly do otherwise. By this power of combining, we are able, by the addition of a few well-chosen circumstances, to give a new life and force to the simple object. So the simple object is the object of beauty. But by words, we can give them a new life and force, give the simple object a new life and force. In painting, we may represent any fine figure we please, but we can never give it those enlivening touches which it may receive from words. To represent an angel in a picture, you can only draw a beautiful young man wing. So that's the point. An angel in a picture can only be a beautiful young man with wings. But what painting can furnish out anything as grand as the addition of one word, the angel of the Lord? A biblical phrase, the angel of the Lord. No picture can give you that. It is true I have here no clear idea in the phrase, the angel of the Lord. But these words affect the mind more than the sensible image did, which is all I contend for. So the imagelessness affects the mind more than the image itself would. Um, he takes an example from the Aeneid. The example, if you want to know, is that, pre well, a picture of Priam dragged to the altar's foot and there murdered um, some of you may know that that is um, a picture we get in Hamlet. A picture, a picture of Priam dragged to the altar's foot and there murdered, if it were well executed, would undoubtedly be very moving. 
but there are very aggravating circumstances which he could never represent, and what it couldn't represent is that Priam himself had lit that altar at which he is being murdered. A picture couldn't show that. You need the words of the Aeneid to tell you, quos ipse sacra verat, that he himself um, uh, made sacred. sacred. Um, as a further instance, let us consider those lines of Milton where he describes the travels of the fallen angels through their dismal habitation. And so what he's referring to is book two, if you have it with you, um, line, um, if you have the signet, it's page 86, um, line 614. Thus roving on is where it begins, if people have it. Book 2, line 614. Thus roving on in confused march forlorn. And again, notice that Miltonic phraseology. I'm not confused. It's the way he pronounced it was confused. Thus roving on in confused march forlorn. That is adjective, confused, noun, march, adjective, forlorn like human face divine, confused march forlorn. Also, Milton likes those two-syllable, one-syllable, two-syllable adjective noun, adjective phrases, human face divine. The noun is central, and then there are two adjectives framing it that are disyllabic. Um, just a thing to hear a little bit. So, thus roving on in confused march forlorn, the adventurous bands with shuddering horror pale, there it is again, shuddering horror is two syllables, but shuddering horror pale, and eyes aghast viewed first their lamentable lot, so the first time they're seeing what hell is like, and found no rest. Through many a dark and dreary veil they passed, and many a region dolorous, or many a frozen, many a fiery alp. All of these are sublime places that they're moving. Rocks, caves, lakes, fens, bogs, dens, and shades of death. Very, very famous line even before Burke. What they're moving through in hell is rocks, caves, lakes, fens, bogs, dens, and shades of death death, a universe of death. That's what Burke is quoting, a universe of death, which God by curse created evil, for evil only good, where all life dies. That is only good for evil. Um, uh, and that's an interesting oxymoron. What are you good for? Only for evil. Um, so God created these things evil, for evil only good. Because God is good. Where all life dies, death lives, and nature breeds perverse, all monstrous, all prodigious things, abominable, inutterable, and worse than fables yet have feigned or fear conceived, Gordons and Hydras and Chimeras dire. So that phrase, here's what Burke says about it. Let us consider these lines of Milton where he describes the travels of the fallen angels through their dismal habitation. Or many a dark and dreary veil they passed, and many a region dolorous, or many a frozen, many a fiery alp, rocks, caves, lakes, fens, bogs, dens, and shades of death. A universe of death. 
And then Burke says, here is displayed the force of union. And the key word there, more than union, is force. Here is displayed the force of union in rocks, caves, lakes, dens, bogs, fens, and shades, which yet would lose the greatest part of their effect if they were not the rocks, caves, lakes, dens, bogs, fens, and shades of death. This idea or this affection caused by a word which nothing but a word can annex to the others, like angel of the Lord, a universe of death, shades of death, which nothing but a word could annex to the others, raises a very great degree of the sublime, and this sublime is raised yet higher by, by what follows, a universe of death. So this idea that it's a universe of death, um, that that's what causes the sublime, is quite different from the idea of the beautiful. The idea of the beautiful is something we can picture, a beautiful young man winged. But the sublime is what we can't picture. And our failure to picture it becomes our success in meeting the unpicturable, in feeling within us something that can't be pictured, but that in our souls we can nevertheless confront it. That's, for Burke, what the sublime is. And that, for Milton, is what hell is. So to take another famous moment very early on in Paradise Lost, this again is, um, now this is book one, um, Satan finds himself in hell, um, and um, he's been hurled headlong. This is page 48, book one, around um, line, um, let's, let's say um, at line 44, him, the almighty power hurled headlong, flaming from the ethereal sky with hideous ruin and combustion down to bottomless perdition, there to dwell in adamantine chains and penal fire. So there, Satan was sent to dwell in adamantine, that is, um, diamond hard, adamant hard. If you're adamant about something, it's because you are hard as the mineral adamant, that you won't, you won't, you won't give up any more than adamant will be broken. So Satan is supposed to be dwelling in adamantine chains. It's worth noticing that he doesn't, that he gets out of his chains. God sends him to adamantine chains, Satan leaves hell. Um, there's, it's also worth noticing the very slight anticipation of Adam in the word adamantine. Um, so he's been sent to dwell in adamantine chains and penal fire. He, Satan, who durst defy the omnipotent to arms. So Satan went against the omnipotent, the all-powerful. He dared to defy the all-powerful in arms. Nine times the space that measures day and night to mortal man, he, with his hard crew, lay vanquished. So nine days he lay there, the way we count time, rolling in the fiery gulf, confounded, though immortal. But his doom reserved him to more wrath, for now the thought both of lost happiness and lasting pain torments him. So a thing to remember about the fallen angels is that they are in constant and unremitting pain. 
and yet they never complain about it. For them, physical pain is something contemptible. Um, yes, they're feeling pain. No, they don't complain. That's part of their courage. So there they are in lasting pain. Round he throws his baleful eyes that witnessed huge affliction and dismay mixed with obdurate pride and steadfast hate. So witness there means testified to affliction and dismay, yes, but also pride and hate as though hell itself has awakened in him this response, pride and hate rather than despair. At once, as far as angels can, he can see as far as an angel can, because he is an angel. At once, as far as angels can, he views the dismal situation, waste and wild, a dungeon horrible, on all sides round as one great furnace flamed, yet from those flames no light, but rather darkness visible served only to discover sights of woe. So that phrase, darkness visible, um, is another very, very famous phrase from Paradise Lost. That it's not a place where you see things, it's a place of darkness visible. He's seeing through the propagation of darkness, not through the propagation of light. And that would be a kind of metaphor that Burke is picking up on that we can't put this together into a picture. Darkness visible only shows you darkness, but the darkness itself can find an answering darkness or an answering response within you as it does within Hayton, within Hayton, within Satan, Hayton on Satan. Um, and then the narrator himself, so one of the dramas of Paradise Lost, is, and this is what Blake is suggesting, one of the dramas of Paradise Lost is the extent to which um, the uh, narrator of Paradise Lost wants to say Satan is evil and we shouldn't like him, but keeps failing to do so. The narrator of Paradise Lost has an official line but finds himself, this is part of the drama of the poem. Paradise Lost, by the way, was originally supposed to be a drama. Um, Milton started it out as a play, and a play to some extent based on King Lear. Um, and part of the drama, though, is that the teller of the tale, the narrator of Paradise Lost, keeps finding it hard not to get pulled into admiration for Satan. And here we feel a really interesting um, note of sympathy. Um, so a little bit farther, line 70, such place eternal justice had prepared for those rebellious. Here, their prison ordained in utter darkness and their portion set as far removed from God and light of heaven as from the center thrice to the utmost pole. Oh, how unlike the place from whence they fell. And that O is an O of surprise. That is, it's, this was all good, eternal justice did this, Satan deserved it, but oh, how unlike the place from whence they fell. That's what's called free indirect discourse. What the narrator is doing in the third person is giving you a sense of how Satan is feeling. He's suddenly seeing things from Satan's 
perspective, not just telling you what Satan is seeing, but seeing it as Satan does. How unlike, that would be Satan thinking, not the narrator. Oh, how unlike the place from whence they fell. There, the companions of his fall, o'erwhelmed with floods and whirlwinds of tempestuous fire, he soon, he soon discerns. And Satan then talks to his best friend and partner Beelzebub and says, look what's happened to us. So let's go a little further to see some other um, examples of this. Satan works really hard um, to cheer up his demoralized followers. And um, go now to page 61. Um, we looked yesterday, well, no, we should look again at Satan's amazing speech, and I'll just draw your attention to where it is in book one, line um, 241, where Satan, having escaped from the adamantine chains that have chained him to the burning lake, he's been chained in liquid fire, but now he gets to the shore, which is made of solid fire, and then he joys glories to escape the Stygian flood. And then he begins, this is a line, book one, line 241, is this the region, this the soil, the climb, said then the lost archangel. So amazing phrase, the lost archangel. That would be the Miltonic version, that is the sublime version of what Burke will call sublime already an angel of the Lord. The lost archangel is not a beautiful young man with wings. The word lost in that phrase, that's a pretty amazing word. So is this the region, this the soil, the climb, said then the lost archangel. This the seat that we must change for heaven, this mournful gloom for that celestial light. Hang on to that phrase, celestial light, which literally means the light of heaven, that is of the skies, but it's a phrase that's going to reappear at the beginning of, of book three, um, celestial light, and it's also an adjective of praise, that light itself is amazing, light itself is celestial. Hang on to it also because Wordsworth is going to use that phrase in the greatest poem of the last 250 years, The Intimations Ode. Um, where celestial light becomes the thing that Wordsworth describes himself as having lost in what is a kind of rewrite, a very short rewrite of Paradise Lost. So Satan says, must we exchange this mournful gloom for that celestial light? And then the great response, and again, this is the sublime response that comes from within him. What's outside of him is, Look what you've lost. Here's what remains. Darkness and pain and fire. And Satan's response is, be it so. The way Nietzsche will put this, a satanic figure who, as um, in his greatest moments, will say things like, better to have the void for purpose than to be void of purpose. As Nietzsche will say, what the will's revenge against time is, is to turn 
it was into thus I willed it. So what you could say another version of the sublime is to will the thing that seems to be set against you. The storm, the mountain, hell itself are threatening you. Danger and darkness compass you round. And the sublime response to that is to say, be it so. That's what Lear is already doing when he says, pour on, blow winds, crack your cheeks, rage, blow. That is the sublime response to the storm. Yeah? Does that all relate to the quote about the most sublime thing possible being like it, it confronted with a human being? Yes. Yeah. Do you want to say more? I want to hear you talk about it. <laughs> well, the idea would be that um, being fully open I mean, this, this will take us far afield, but it's um, a field that Paradise Lost will eventually get to. To be fully open to another, to set another before you, is to open yourself to the possibility of being overwhelmed by the presence of someone as large as you. Our general attitude towards, towards others is there are a lot of others in our lives. Um, evolutionary biologists say about two or 300 who really matter. Um, that's who we ultimately keep track of. And what that means is that they're all just a part of the miracle or universe that is one's own mind. So there's you, and then there are a lot of people, a lot of they's, a lot of them's in your life. Um, there's the pronoun I, Ambrose Bierce in his wonderful Devil's Dictionary, a book that you shouldn't go another day without looking at, um, defines the word I, if you go to, to I in the dictionary, that is the letter I, um, he defines it as the first letter of the alphabet, the first thought of the mind, and um, the most important thing in the world. And you can see um, what he's talking about there, that is egoism is natural to us. But to set another before you is to threaten your I with another being who you all know that Descartes' famous line is cogito ergo sum, which means, anyone? I think, therefore, I am. Um, Descartes knows that he ams is the way to understand that. Um, do you know what God said to Moses in the burning bush? From the burning bush? Moses says to God, this is in, in Exodus, um, a bush is burning and out of the fire comes a still small voice and the burning bush says, um, or the voice from the bush says, tell the children of Israel to escape from the um, slavery in Egypt and Moses says, who should I say is sending me? And do people know God's response, the Lord's response? It's actually the Lord, not God, at that moment. He refuses, yeah, what is it? He does get there, but first he says, I am that am. So God gives an amazing philosophical definition of himself in Exodus. Who is God? God says of himself, I am that am. That's the um, King James translation of it. In Hebrew, echye asher echye, which is better translated as, I will be what I will be. 
but the idea that it's I am that am somehow gets something deeper about it. God is what ams. The universe exists because God ams it. Then he dams some of it, so he both ams and dams. Sorry, I couldn't resist. But God is amming. When Descartes says, I think, therefore I am, what he's saying is the one thing I know is that there's a way of being which is amming. But for humans, the only thing you can am is yourself. Other things are, another person is, but am only applies to I. So to put another before you is sublime because you are letting that other am as well. And their amming can be the greatest possible danger to your own amming. They could overwhelm you. And that, for Blake, is the part of the sublimity, is to accept that risk, to um, accept that risk in mutuality. That, for Blake, is what love is. That, for Blake, is what the comforter and what the Messiah, the real Messiah, the true Messiah, who he thinks is Satan in Paradise Lost, that's what the Messiah offers, is that possibility. But that's what makes it sublime. So I don't know if that's the answer <laughs> you were hoping for. Um, so... Be it so, says Satan, since he who now is sovereign can dispose and bid what shall be right. Farthest from him is best. So God can decide what's right, but I can decide what's good, what's in fact best, which is as far away from the person who thinks might makes right as you can possibly be away from the splendid vassalage of heaven. So I want us to look at one more passage now, um, which is go to, um, this is book one, line, um, uh, just go straight to book one, line 587. This is page 63 of the Signet. Do you guys have the same? I keep giving you page numbers. I want to make sure to do the same page numbers. No. Okay. So book one, line um, 587, then. All the fallen angels have come to listen to Satan's speech to them. Um, they have clustered around. And Satan and Milton, the narrator, describes how many there are. And this is the largest army that has ever appeared in the history of the world is the army of the rebel angels in hell. And Satan looks at them. And um, at line 587, thus far these beyond compare of mortal prowess, that is so much more than any mortal army ever was, yet observed their dread commander. So they are there looking at Satan. They just watch him and obey him, wait for him to speak. He, above the rest, in shape and gesture, proudly eminent, stood like a tower. His form had yet not lost all her original 
brightness. So the her there refers to his form. His form had yet not lost all her original brightness. I hope, by the way, you're hearing how often the word loss and lost appear in Paradise Lost. His form had yet not lost all her original brightness, nor appeared less than archangel ruined and the excess of glory obscured. So lost archangel here becomes archangel ruined. As when the sun, new risen, looks through the horizontal misty air, shorn of his beams, or from behind the moon, in dim eclipse disastrous twilight sheds on half the nations, and with fear of change perplexes monarchs, darkened so like the sun behind the moon or at dawn, darkened so, yet shone above them all the archangel. So not the lost archangel, simply the archangel. Yet shone above them all the archangel, but his face deep scars of thunder had entrenched, and care sat on his faded cheek, but under brows of dauntless courage and considerate pride, waiting revenge, cruel his eye, but cast signs of remorse and passion to behold the fellows of his crime, the followers, rather. So notice again the free indirect discourse there. He looks at them and he says, the fellows of my crime, they too committed this crime. And he says, no, I did it. That rather is Satan's. The followers, rather. Far other ones beheld in bliss, condemned forever now to have their lot in pain. Millions of spirits for his fault immersed of heaven and from eternal splendor swung for his revolt. Yet faithful how they stood, their glory withered. So their glory is withered, and yet they stand faithful. So one thing you can't say about the rebel angels is that they lack faith. They've lost everything, and they stay faithful, yet faithful how they stood, their glory withered. Okay, book three for Monday, and catch up, obviously, if you need to. And um, have a good weekend. Yeah? Did he use her, the pronoun, her form, because of the Latin? Yeah. Um, and, but the idea is also that Satan's form isn't exactly what he is. That is the idea that what's external is trash. Um, his form may be the form of an archangel, but even if it isn't, inside himself he still is an archangel. Um, so by using her, there's, it's, it's a semi-personification. But yes, it is because of the Latin. Yeah. Yes. And is she supposed to be Athena? Yes. Coming out of the, the head of Zeus. Yeah. And death is Satan's grandson? And son. Ah. Both. Okay. And how did she end up, I think she said that she was beautiful, but she ended up a snake body? Yeah, that's part of God's punishment. Ah. Why wasn't she sent down with the rest of the ring? Because she's not a real person. So sin and death are out. Sin and death, a lot of people hate that moment. Um, but she's an allegorical figure. She's not, she doesn't have a soul the way all the angels and humans do. Um, it's much more, she belongs to an older kind of um, literary tradition where you might run into sin or death or whatever, 
and what they are are they are um, they are personifications of abstraction. So we shouldn't treat her as though she were a real character. No, even though she, even though Milton has a whole lot of trouble not not making her real. Yes. Yeah, 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 and she's really worried that Satan and death are going to kill each other and how terrible that will be. So Milton um, does make agencies into, into souls, and he really shouldn't be and knows he shouldn't be with sin and death, and yet he's, it's just that's what he does. Um, he credits um, people with being, he credits agents and personifications with having minds. Um, he sets others before him, you could say. Um, so a lot of people feel that that's one of the weakest parts of Paradise Lost, um, the sin and death why allegory. Why what? Why shouldn't? Like, why, why because, shouldn't? Because, they never, because sin may be sin, but did she ever sin? What did she do wrong? And why does God make her the keeper of the gates of hell if she's supposed to be evil? Um, yeah. Now, the idea would be that you can't really make an angel the keeper of the gates of hell because why would the angel be in hell? But she is supposedly doing God's bidding. So Milton um, just goes to what's still very common. I mean, it's a common way of doing um, uh, literature, especially didactic literature at the time, which is to personification and allegory. Um, but it's the, you know, in a way, it's the least interesting thing that happens in the first two books of Paradise Lost. Well, I mean, it's 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 gory and 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 colorful and um, and and striking, but it's not the kind of thing that you return to over and over again. It's not the episode that that really stays with you over time, okay. or that you want to reread over time. And then the abyss is that another personification? The abyss. No, the abyss is it. Yeah, the abyss is um, that's simply the what what Blake calls the vacuum. Um, Sort of, yeah. I mean, or do you mean um, chaos and night? Those are not the abyss. Not quite. Oh, okay. Um, chaos and night. Are they yeah. So those are personifications also, um, but they're slightly less. Um, they're more obscure and therefore less personified. They are personified, but much less than sin and death are. And it's partly because chaos and night come from Greek and Roman mythology, more Greek mythology than Roman, I think. Um, and so they are more like agents and agencies that come out of mythology than um, allegorical personifications. You know, there isn't a Greek god of sin or there isn't sin walking around um, on earth in, um, in Greek mythology. But chaos and night are figures in Greek mythology, and they are agents, if not persons. And Milton kind of keeps them as agents, but doesn't quite make them persons. It's not like chaos and night have a conversation, and chaos says, oh, I don't know night. I don't know if this is a good idea. And night says, well, yeah, maybe not, but still. Um, it's, it's more like they are simply the, the, the concentration of the chaotic realm between hell and the created universe. Um, Milton doesn't think that there's creation ab nihilo. That's one of his many heresies. So creation out of nothing. So the standard theology is that God created the world um, ex nihilo or ab nihilo, from nothing. There was nothing, and then God said, let there be something, light. Um, Milton, Milton um, explicitly doesn't believe that. 
he thinks there was just chaos, formless chaos, um, first matter, as he calls it, and that matter is as eternal as God, but that what God does is he gives form to matter, um, and that that's what, that's what divine creation is, is giving form to matter. I'm making connections to like the Big Bang theory yeah. and about uh, the cosmic egg and the, before the Big Bang. And right, exactly. Yeah, it's a good connection to make. Okay. Thank you. Have okay. A good day. You too. Bye bye.